for you to uh, turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 9. We find the text of uh, God's word for today. And as you do so, would you please stand as we read the word together. Matthew 9, beginning in verse 36. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Let's pray. As Jesus had compassion on seeing the people, Lord, we just pray that even as you have as seen in the scripture here, given power to your disciples. You have done that in the same way for all of us who have trusted in you, because you've given us your spirit, which dwells in each one of us. And we recognize the power that you have and that you command. I pray, Father, in obedience, we hear the message this morning. We hear that there is a harvest. We hear that there's a need for faithful workers. And even as you send your 12 out, Father, send us. We pray, even as was shared last week in looking at the scripture, that we recognize there is fertile soil that receives the very seed that produces the very crop and the very harvest that Jesus is talking about here. We pray that today for our body, for those in our body that we know who need you, Lord Jesus, may we proclaim that truth to them. Give us the boldness, give us the strength, and give us your eyesight in recognizing those opportunities. We pray, Father, for Chris as he comes to speak, that your word would be well received. May we be hearers of the word and doers as well. May we hear clearly your words this morning. We pray these things in your name, because you give us the power to do that. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, it's good to be home with you all. Um, we had a wonderful little trip to, down to Texas and visiting with family and seeing some new country, and it was wonderful, but um, you were all in our hearts and minds as we went, um, so we're happy, very happy to be with you all again. And as we come back, we are returning to Matthew. Uh, we've taken the month of January talking about church and church membership and the ordinances, and now we are back 
to where we left off in the book of Matthew. Uh, Let's do a little bit of review so we remind ourselves of where we are at. First, let's remember that Matthew is the gospel of the kingdom. It is the message, the good news about the kingdom, about Really, if you were to look from Genesis to Revelation, the main theme of all, the main storyline, is about the kingdom. God's kingdom with his chosen king over the whole world. And so what we see in Matthew is the development where we see the king, the chosen king, stepping onto the scene. And remember, Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience, probably primarily a Christian audience, those who already know Christ. But those, uh, you got to think about his Jewish audience, probably in Palestine, probably in that area uh, where they'd been used to Judaism. They'd been in that community. But now what we see is the Christian community, the Jewish Christian community moving away from the Jews who hadn't accepted Jesus as the Messiah. So really, Matthew was writing. Why is he writing this? He's writing to prove, to reaffirm, that prove that Jesus is king, to give instruction about his kingdom and how to follow the king. And that would have been especially important uh, for the Jewish audience, those who have been in Judaism, but now Judaism as a whole isn't following, and so they have to have that assurance, to know that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the king, to know what his kingdom is all about and how to follow the king until he comes again. Chapters 1 through 4, we walk through that. Even before Jesus even speaks in the gospel, uh, Matthew is presenting Jesus' identity, his fulfillment of Scripture, and his identity of who he is as the king. We see Jesus' baptism, and we see him as as the beloved Son of God. Uh, the Son of God is that terminology that, that, that uh, like Israel, like David, there's a function to that. The Son of God is to rule over God's people and really ultimately over the whole world. But Jesus is not only the Son of God in function, he's the Son of God in deity as well. And as Jesus starts his ministry, he starts his ministry in chapter 4, verse 17. I want to remind you of these things because uh, they're going to tie in with what we're going to see today. 4.17 says this, this is when Jesus starts his ministry, it says this, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of the heavens has drawn near. That was Jesus' summary message. That's what he preached. He went around. He went around Galilee. He went around Israel. And everything, if you were to coalesce his message, was this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. But notice, as he starts his ministry, he also called disciples. And I'm going to read a little bit more, because again, that's going to feed into what we're going to talk about today. Verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men, or fishers of people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. So Jesus not only starts his ministry, he starts his fishing expedition, but he gathers disciples, and he promises, as he gathers these disciples, I will make you fishers of men. They're not fishers yet, but he's going to make them so. And how is he going to do that? Well, he's going to do that by them following him, by them observing him, by them uh, listening to his teaching. And so we see a summary of Jesus' ministry in Galilee in verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So Jesus' ministry is is attracting these crowds, these people. And you remember the crowds, they're not not enemies, uh, but they're not disciples either. They're somewhere in the middle. They're neutral. Uh, We're not sure yet. Are they coming to Jesus just for his miracles, for the benefits, or are they actually seeking to follow Jesus? And then we get the first discourse in Matthew. We went through the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, where Jesus demonstrates his authority, his authority in teaching. You remember that's how it ended in chapter 7. Here's what kingdom righteousness looks like. He's teaching his disciples, first and foremost, and then by extension, the crowds. But as he finishes, the crowds recognize his authority, his authority in teaching. And then in chapters 8 through 9, Jesus demonstrates his authority in another way. 
He demonstrates his authority by healing, casting out demons, healing paralytics, healing lepers. And, and as he's doing that, it's, it's not just demonstrating his authority, it's demonstrating his identity. And see, as we walk through this, Jesus demonstrates again and again that he is the ultimate Davidic king, the one who's going to fulfill the Davidic covenant. He is the son of God, and he is God himself, God the son, God incarnate which precipitates demands for discipleship. Jesus isn't begging for followers. He is demanding that people follow him because he is the king. And at the end of nine, where we left off in our study, we get a bookend. We had one bookend in chapter four of Jesus going around, doing all this healing, teaching, and we see that same sort of language in 935, right after he cast out a demon says this, 9.35, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. It's the same sort of language as in chapter 4. Those are the bookends. And what that's doing for us is now there's a turning point. Now there's a turning point in the narrative. Jesus has been demonstrating his authority. He's been doing his ministry. He's been proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. And all the while, he's got this group of disciples following them, following him, learning from him. And now it's time to commission them for work, to be those fishers of men that he was training them to be all along. And so that leads us to our main idea for the text that Jim read this morning, that we're in this morning, chapter 936 through 10, verse 4, is this. This is the big idea where Matthew is going, where we need to go. It's this. Get ready to compassionately go to work in Jesus' harvest of his people. Get ready to compassionately go to work in Jesus' harvest of his people. And the first thing we need to see as Jesus commissions his disciples is this. Therefore, his disciples, and therefore us, plead. Plead for more workers to gather the shepherdless. Plead for more workers to gather the shepherdless. Look at verse 36. Now, seeing the crowds. Now, just that little phrase right there actually should remind you of something you've already seen in Matthew. You see, Jesus used that language before at the beginning of chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Uh, that phrase, really, he sees the crowds, these people that are kind of neutral. They're not, we're not sure if he, they're committed disciples yet or not, but in the case in chapter 5, verse 1, seeing the crowds precipitated a discourse, one of the five big discourses in Matthew. So we already went through the first one, and what's going to happen, really what we're seeing today, is the run-up to the second main discourse. Chapter 10 is the second main discourse where Jesus teaches his disciples, and it begins in a similar sort of way. He sees the crowds, he sees the crowds, but this time, when Jesus sees the crowds, it says he felt compassion concerning them. Uh, this idea of compassion, it's gut compassion. And we understand this, don't you? When you see someone who's in need, who's suffering, who needs help, you feel it in your gut, don't you? You often feel it. There's a visceralness to seeing someone in need and wanting to help them. And that's this word. Jesus, the King, God himself incarnate, has compassion. He sees these people. They're not committed disciples yet. He sees them, and he has compassion for them. And that's an amazing thing. We, when we see Jesus, we see and we see his character, we see the character of God, and we see his compassion. But we see the reason for his compassion. Why is he compassionate? Why does he have this gut compassion for the crowds? Because they were harassed and helpless. Uh, that's probably how most translations give it. Literally, there, there's these two words that, that Jesus describes, or that Matthew describes, uh, how the crowds were, and what motivated Jesus' compassion. The first word, its core sense, like its literal sense, is to be torn, meaning the, 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 the crowds that he's seeing were torn. And it can have the sense, uh, like it's translated here, it can, it can develop into a sense of being annoyed or being harassed. But what we're going to see, that, that phrase there, they're uh, harassed and helpless or uh, being torn and 
uh, abandoned, as I'm, what I'm going to argue for is how they should be translated. But why, would we, why, why should we translate it that way? Well, because this little phrase, as sheep without a shepherd, is actually a text that's going to point us back to the Old Testament, and specifically Ezekiel 34, which is going to describe exactly the same sort of conditions that Jesus is seeing here. And what you will see in that passage, we're going to go there in a minute, Ezekiel 34, what you will see in that passage is that the sheep, they're not just a little bit annoyed, a little bit harassed, they are mangled. So the idea, I think, the full force of this word should be brought out, they were torn. And not only were they torn, what you're going to see in Ezekiel 34 is that they were scattered and abandoned. And that's really the sense of the second word. They were torn and they were, the second word, the, 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 the literal sense, at least initially, its core sense is they were thrown. They were hurled. It's, it's a very kind of violent word, and it could develop into a lot of different senses. And so uh, some people, it could just be uh, thrown down, isolated, uh, but it can also mean abandoned. And I think given the context or where we're going to go next in Ezekiel 34, I think it's best to see these words as torn and abandoned. This is a flock, this is a people that is mangled, that has been uh, abused, that has been abandoned. And as Jesus compares it, they're like sheep not having a shepherd. Now, sheep not having a shepherd, that's, that's a phrase that actually shows up several times in the Old Testament. Probably the first time it shows up is the transition of leadership from Joshua to Moses, or sorry, the exact opposite of that, Moses to Joshua. Uh, uh, when that's happening, Moses is the leader, and Moses is about to die, and God says, we need a leader. Uh, The people say, we need a leader so that Israel is not like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, And even later in the the Old Testament, uh, there's a description with Ahab. There's a prophet who approaches King Ahab and the kings, and he says, I've had this vision, and Israel's scattered on the the, the mountains, scattered all over the land because they're like sheep without a shepherd, pointing to Ahab's death. It's a common refrain, and this idea that the leadership, the leadership of Israel, it's kings, but not just its kings, it's priests, and all of the elders, the, the leadership as a whole of Israel is often likened to shepherds. And what's amazing is as Israel got closer and closer to, the, um, to exile, Israel going to Assyria and then Judah, the southern kingdom going into Babylon, this refrain picks up in places like Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34, which is where we're going next. And what God says is, my people are going into exile. They're going to be scattered. Um, because, yes, because of their disobedience, But what's amazing is, is that God pegs the blame of the lion's share of the blame for the exile on Israel's leaders, on their leaders. They led them in a wrong direction. You're going to see that painted in a very very, uh, visual way in Ezekiel 34. We're going to read the whole chapter because it forms uh, the backdrop, the primary backdrop for what Jesus is saying in Matthew 9.36. Uh, you're going to see the language that Jesus is using here uh, spoken of in Ezekiel 34. And like what we've seen a bunch in Matthew, uh, a single phrase can pull, it's like a first link in a chain, it can pull a whole bunch with it. And it is pulling a whole bunch with it. It's pulling ideas of the exile, it's pulling ideas of the scattering of God's people, and that is the backdrop we see in Ezekiel 34. So let's go ahead and turn there and look at that. Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel the prophet writes from Babylon, already in exile, but the exile kind of came in three waves. So he's kind of in the middle wave of this whole exile package. And God in the 34 um, begins to describe, here's what happened. Here's why the people went into exile. Ezekiel 34 verse 1. The word of Yahweh came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says Lord Yahweh, ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, 
the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, they wandered over all the mountains and on every, every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. And you see the imagery of what's happening here. He's saying, here's shepherds. Shepherds are stewards. They're supposed to care for the flock. And God is saying, here's the leadership of Israel. You were supposed to care for the flock. You were supposed to feed the flock. You were supposed to care for them because they're my flock. And you have not done so. And what have they done? What has Israel done? They went to idolatry. That's that language of going to the hills, uh, going to idolatry on the hills. And they're scattered. And they're mangled. They're food for prey. That's why we went with that translation of torn and abandoned, because that's exactly what Ezekiel 34 is talking about. They are sheep without a shepherd. The, the fault of the exile, the fault of the spiritual idolatry of God's people and why they went into exile, why they were separated from the land and from God's temple was the leadership. The, yes, the people sinned, but there's a proportionately larger share of blame to go to the leaders. And let's keep reading. Verse 7, therefore you shepherds hear the word of Yahweh. As I live, declares the Lord Yahweh, surely because my sheep have been Come up, pray, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts. Since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore you shepherds hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep and have been, uh, that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from their co the countries and it will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture, land, uh, pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord Yahweh. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. So God's saying, you were my steward shepherds, and you failed. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do the job that you should have done. I'm going to gather my people. My people went into exile. They were scattered, and I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to seek them. I'm going to feed them. I'm going to bind them up. I'm going to do what you should have done. That's what he says. And he's going to bring them back. He's going to reassemble Israel back into its land. He's going to regather them as the flock. And he keeps going. Verse 17. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord Yahweh, behold, I judge between the sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture and drink uh, to, and to drink of clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet? And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink uh, what you have muddied with your feet? Verse 20, Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh to them, Behold, I, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep and I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, Yahweh, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I am Yahweh, I have spoken. But this is interesting, isn't it? God says, I'm going to, you shepherds, you weren't doing your job, the kings, the priests, uh, you didn't do your job, I'm going to do it. But then he says here, David's going to do it. 
David's going to do it. The ultimate Davidic king, the one of the Davidic covenant who is supposed to rule over the people, David's going to do it. Yes, God is the one who's ultimately going to do it, but he's going to do it through the ultimate Davidic king, the Messiah, which is exactly what Jesus is alluding to. Jesus is that shepherd. Jesus is that ultimate king, and he's the one that's going to regather the flock. He's going to regather those who have been torn and abandoned because of bad leadership. And notice this is in connection with the new covenant. Let's keep reading in Ezekiel 34. Remember in in Matthew, uh, Jesus is the mediator. He's not only the Davidic king, he's the mediator of the new covenant. He's going to establish the new covenant. And this regathering of Israel is exactly what's in view here in Ezekiel 34. And it's also in connection with the new covenant. Look at verse 25. I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing, and I will send down the showers in their season, and they shall be showers of blessing. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield its increase, and they shall be secure in their land, and they shall know that I am Yahweh when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslave them. They shall no more be a prey to the nations, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely, and none shall make them afraid. And I will provide for them renowned plantations, so that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land, and no longer suffer the reproach of the nations. And they shall know that I am Yahweh, their God, with them, and they, that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord Yahweh, and you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. And now we flip back to Matthew 9. That is all at play. When Jesus says he has compassion concerning the crowds because they're torn and abandoned like sheep not having a shepherd, he's talking about Ezekiel 34. And he has the compassion of the Davidic king. He's the one who's going to do the job. He's the shepherd. He's the one that's going to gather his people. He's going to gather the crowds, these people. And and the situation in Ezekiel's day and in Jesus' day was much the same. You had the leaders of Israel, the the Herods, who were ultimately under Rome. Uh, You had the Pharisees, uh, who were kind of among the people and supposed to be spiritual leaders. You had the Sadducees, who were in control of the temple. You had scribes, who were supposed to interpret the law, but already we've seen in Matthew, they're misinterpreting the law. They're not applying it rightly. They're doing the exact same things that the Ezekiel shepherds were doing. They weren't feeding the sheep. They weren't caring for them. They were spiritually abusive. And Jesus sees them in the same state, the crowds, the people, the Joe and Mary Israelites, they're torn and abandoned. They don't have right leadership. And Jesus has compassion on them because he's the shepherd. He's the one who's going to come in and do the job. He's the one who's going to gather these people again. And how has Jesus been gathering people? He's already been doing it through the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. He's the king. He's the shepherd. He's the one that's going to regather Israel, and he's already been gathering disciples. And he, and he sees this condition. It's horrible that the shepherds of these people have betrayed them, and he has compassion, a gut compassion for them. So what does he do? Verse 37. Then he is saying to his disciples, so isn't that interesting? Jesus is looking out. He's seeing these, all these people that have kind of been attracted to him, and yet they're, they're not disciples. They're not committed yet. And he turns to his disciples, those who are committed to him, and he says this. The harvest is much. Now, he just switched metaphors, didn't he? Because he was just talking about sheep, and all of a sudden now he's talking about harvest, so he's talking about like wheat or barley or something like that. But that imagery is also in the Old Testament. Uh, we'll not go there, but you could see it in Isaiah 27, 12 through 13, where God talks about harvesting his people, bringing them back, drawing them back like a harvest. But what's interesting here is how Jesus frames this. The harvest is much. There's potential. Isn't that interesting? Where Jesus sees really a horrific scene, right? Here are torn and abandoned sheep. They've been spiritually malnourished. Uh, Their shepherds have abandoned them, but what it creates is opportunity. It creates opportunity. 
the harvest is much. The harvest is much, but the workers are few. But the workers are few. So we've got a big harvest. There's a lot going on. I see it. I feel compassionate for it. This is my job. It's a big job, but the workers are few. He's talking to the disciples, and what does he tell them to do? Verse 38, therefore, plead. This is this word, uh, it's translated pray. Uh, I don't, I, I'll explain why in a minute, but I don't think it's uh, first and foremost a prayer. It's, this word just has the idea of pleading. So it's a, it's a very earnest plea, which is what prayer can be, very much so. But notice what he says, therefore, plead with the Lord or the master of the harvest so that he might throw out workers into his harvest. Now, he's got this picture. Actually, there's kind of an Old Testament uh, picture. Um, Not that I'm saying that Jesus is referring to that. It just gives us a picture of what he's talking about. You remember the book of Ruth? The book of Ruth? And in the middle of Ruth, you've got this harvest scene. And uh, who's the master of the harvest? Boaz is. Boaz owns this field, he owns this harvest, and he's got workers and everything, but he owns the harvest, and he also participates in the harvest. He oversees it. And that's the imagery here. The the imagery is Jesus is the master of this harvest. He owns this harvest. He's the Davidic shepherd that's gathering these people in, and he sees his work, and it's a great harvest, and he's turning to his friends right beside him, his workers, and he's saying, the harvest is a lot. Uh, And we have few workers to plead. Plead with the master of the harvest. Who's that? It's Jesus. Plead with the master of the harvest. I'm the master of the harvest. You see the work in front of me. You see my aims in gathering these people in repentance and faith. Plead with me to send out more workers into the harvest. Isn't that kind of interesting? But that's kind of how it works, isn't it? When, when people are so aligned, that Jesus has this aim of gathering people in repentance and faith. His friends, his disciples, those who are, have their allegiance to him, they should be so in tune with who he is that they're like, yeah, we see the work in front of you. We see it. We love it. Send out more. We need more workers. Plead with me, with Jesus, to send out more workers. And Implicit in that is send us in, send us in. Yes, they're supposed to ask for more workers generally, but it's kind of like the idea of put us in, coach, put us in. You ever been in a situation like that or in a game, right, where um, I sat on the bench a bunch, I wasn't a good athlete, but, but you're, you know, you're sitting on the bench and you see the game and you're so in tune with the team and the game and the coach and you're like, I can do this, put me in, put me in. That's the idea of what he's saying. Plead with the Lord of the harvest. Ask me. I want to do it. Just ask me. Ask me. Plead with the Lord of the harvest so that he might throw out laborers into the harvest. That's what you're supposed to do. And notice in 10 verse 1, Jesus essentially answers that plea without the plea actually being stated. Uh, Look at verse 10, 1. There's an and that begins that, which means it's connected with what just came before. Um, just a reminder that chapters and verses are not inspired, so sometimes uh, uh, we have them, but sometimes there's mistakes in where the breaks come. But 10.1 is supposed to be connected with what came before. But notice what Jesus does. And summoning his 12 disciples, now he probably has more than 12 disciples. Uh, uh, we can see in Luke and, and et cetera that there are more than 12, but he chooses these 12, and we'll talk about why in a second. But he summons these 12 And notice what Jesus does. He gives to them authority. He gives to them authority over unclean spirits so that they might cast out, might cast out demons and might heal every disease and every malady, every every debility. Now, up to now, Jesus himself has been the only one who can do that. Jesus himself has been the only one who has demonstrated the authority over unclean spirits to cast them out. He's the only one that's had the authority to heal diseases and afflictions. And you remember why he did that, right? It's not just to demonstrate his authority, but it's also giving foretastes of the kingdom. In the final kingdom, Jesus is going to rule over all the world And it's going to be a world free from corruption, free from sin, free from the effects of sin. 
So he's giving foretaste of the kingdom. That's what he has been doing. But now he transfers authority to his disciples, to these 12, just these 12. He transfers authority to this 12 to do what he has been doing. Why? To answer the plea that he just said, plead for this, more workers. Jesus, who's been working so far? Who have been the few workers? John the Baptist, he's been preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Jesus uh, has been proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. But now he authorizes. There's been maybe two or a handful more of workers so far. And now he authorizes his disciples with the same kind of authority that he has to extend his ministry. It's Jesus' harvest. He's still the overseer, and he's bringing in more workers to engage in gathering people, to proclaim the message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near, and to back up that message with the display of the foretaste of that future kingdom. That is what he is doing. He's putting his people in. He says, ask me, and then he immediately does it. Ask me, and then he immediately does it with these 12. So as we see this, how do we apply it? Obviously, this is for the 12 apostles, and we'll talk about them here in a second. But even already, what do we see? Well, first we see this. This is amazing, and you can't gloss over this. Jesus... God the Son incarnate has compassion, gut compassion for the lost, for those who are outside the kingdom, for those who are enemies of God. Even people, now think about this, right? He's talking about crowds, and these crowds, they think they're okay. They think they're part of they're part of Israel. They have all the, the commands and the heritage and everything else. And they have leaders telling them, yeah, you're doing fine. Just do this, this, or this, or, or whatever. But they're, 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 they're not being spiritually led truly. And they're lost. They're lost. They, they think they're okay. But whether someone recognizes that they're totally lost or whether someone thinks they're okay, but not, hasn't repented and entrusted themselves to Jesus, they're lost. But Jesus, God the Son, has compassion. He has a gut compassion. He wants those people to repent, to turn allegiance from sin and self, and to entrust themselves to him, to the one who will sacrifice for their sins. Jesus has that compassion. Sometimes, sometimes we think that we're okay, right? We're in this, well, I, you know, I go to church. I'm, I've been to church all my life. I have the right ideas. I have the right knowledge. That doesn't make you, that doesn't mean you've responded to Jesus' compassion. You might still very well be lost, and Jesus has compassion for you. He says, if that's you, where you're, you have all the knowledge, and you're sitting, and you, you know the truth, you have the right heritage, you've been raised right, you're raised morally, that doesn't mean anything. Jesus still has compassion on you, meaning you need help. You need help. Just as much help as the prostitute, the sinner, the whoever you might think of as more the drug dealer, the morally reprobate. You need just as much help, and you are just as needy of Jesus' compassion on your behalf. But the reality is Jesus has compassion. He wants you to repent. He wants you to entrust yourself to him. He wants you to swear allegiance to him as king. So if you haven't already, recognize your sin. Repent and come to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as the compassionate God. He calls you today through me as an ambassador. Come. Come to the one mediator between God and man, the one who will have you as the, uh, and who will have you have him as the treasure of your souls. And then as we're brought in, as believers, we have received this compassion. We have received Christ's mercy. Here's the next question. Do you have compassion for lost souls? Whether they're the most morally reprobate person you can think of or whether they're the person next to you in the pew who doesn't know Jesus, do you have compassion for lost souls? Do you desire their repentance? You can put it this way, are Jesus aims your aims? He's the master of the harvest. Do you have, after receiving that compassion, do you have a put-me-in-coach desire for Jesus' harvest operation? 
And along with that, are you pleading with him? Are you praying to him to send out more workers? And along with that, are you ready to get sent? Are you pleading for more workers? And then are you ready to get sent? We need that mentality. All of us are involved in this harvest operation. Jesus says, if you're a Christian, he calls you to be involved in this harvest operation. We, we are involved in different ways and different, different manifestations of that. We have different roles as the body. The body has different roles, but we are all involved in the harvest operation and the display of Jesus' compassion. Here's the amazing thing along with that. Notice that Jesus, this is the turning point. Jesus is sending out his disciples now. Here's the point where he lets them loose as fishers of men. He didn't do it right away. Why not? Because they needed training. They needed to understand what are they proclaiming? What are they displaying? What are they talking about with regard to the kingdom? That's why he trains them with a, a Matthew 5 through 7. Here's what discipleship, here's what kingdom living looks like. He has them follow him and see what Jesus is doing and that's the reality, too. When you come to Christ, you know very little. You don't need to know a lot to become a Christian. Uh, it's not like you have to have all the theology uh, I's and t um, uh, dotted in the T's crossed. No, it's allegiance. It's repentance and faith in Christ and allegiance to him. But there's a lot you don't know. There's a lot you don't know. And so what is that discipleship, right? To grow in knowledge. What do I need to proclaim? If we're going to be involved in this, if we're going to be involved in the harvest operation, we take a cue from Jesus, learn, be intentional about learning. What is it that I need to proclaim? How do I proclaim the gospel? How do I articulate the gospel? What does that look like? How do I do it? We need training, and that's why the church is here, to help one another so that we can be efficient and effective as proclaimers of the gospel of the kingdom. Be intentional about that. If you don't know, don't just stay not knowing. Pursue so that you can be put into the game, so to speak. Here's another thing we can take away from what we've already seen this morning. This is just rich. There's a lot in here. This struck me this week. There's a ripe harvest. There's a great harvest to be had among those whose spiritual leaders have failed them. Did you catch that in the text? Jesus said, he's talking about sheep without a shepherd, and he says, the harvest is much because they're sheep without a shepherd. There is a ripe harvest. There is great potential to be had among those whose spiritual leaders have failed them. And friends, we all know there is much of that in the world and in this country. You know it. We've talked about it. Many of you have told me, even in this area, trying to find a sound church. There's uh, friends of ours that are in Madras area right now, and they're trying to find a sound church, and they've gone through like 26 churches trying to find a sound church. Why? Because the spiritual leadership has failed them. But when true spiritual leadership under Jesus, as his under-shepherds, comes around there is great potential. There is great potential. And the reality is, you know some of these folks who are in those scenarios. Are you engaging with them and saying, are you being shepherded? Are you being cared for? Are you being fed? Are you being nourished? And you're saying, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't want to get into sheep stealing. Well, Jesus doesn't have any qualms about it. If those who should be spiritual shepherds have failed their flocks, Jesus wants them under proper, healthy spiritual leadership. That's what Jesus wants. There is great potential among those whose spiritual leadership has failed them. And we end on this. This is... We need sound shepherds. We need sound shepherds. We are all involved in the harvest operation. We are all involved in that. And yet there is a particular need for sound under shepherds. Those who will feed, those who will care, those who will tend the flock. And so I want to I make an appeal. Men, men, are you seeking to be shepherd or elder qualified? Are you seeking that? And, and you might say, well, I don't know about that. Well, it doesn't matter whether you're actually going to end up being an elder uh, or not. Everyone's called to those qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. We're all called to that. That's just normal Christianity uh, and 
someone's matured along the way. That's all those character qualifications are. So whoever you are, as a man, are you seeking to be shepherd, elder, qualified? You should be pursuing those character qualities in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And we need shepherds. We need men who are going to willing to tend the sheep, care for the sheep, love the sheep, because the harvest is much. And then specifically, I would address our young men. Young men, are you orienting your life towards shepherd elder qualifications now? It takes intentionality. It, it doesn't just flop into your lap. It takes intentionality. And friends, and young men, we need shepherds. We need pastors. That's what we need. Because there are many out there who are not under sound leadership, not under sound teaching, and we need shepherds and pastors. Think of Andre, right? Andre is back in Chicago, and bless, bless him for he aspires. He's an elder. He wants to hone his skills so that he can be a better shepherd, a better pastor. He's been sent out. We want to do that more. We need sound shepherds. So young men, I, I had... I. Two instances where someone, as a young man, spoke into my life and said, one was shortly after, uh, was not doing well spiritually, I repented, and an elder was investing in me, and he said, you know, you should be thinking and aiming at eldership, because you got about 10 or 12 years before, before you're ready. That was one conversation. Another, from one of my, uh, one of my friends and mentors, he said, I tell all young men they should at least think and pray about going into vocational ministry. And we're not just talking about vocational ministry. It could be, uh, it could be that. It could be a, a teaching pastor. It could be uh, a missionary. But it also, we need, we need more Jims and Steves. <laughs> we need more Jims and Steves because we're all involved in the work of shepherding. And the women aren't exempt. Women. You can lead other women well. You can shepherd other women well. Are you pursuing that? And even in the home, are, the, the, the influence of a mom in the home on kids, that's shepherding. That's shepherding along with your husband. Are you pursuing that? Are you working to produce the next generation of leaders? Are you valuing? Here's another way to think about it. Are you valuing godly male leadership? Are you encouraging male shepherds in your home, your husband, or even here in the church? Are you encouraging leadership? And the thing about leadership, they don't always get it right, but are you encouraging that? Are you seeking that to flourish because we need more shepherds because the harvest is great? The harvest is great. So plead, plead for more workers to gather the shepherdless. Second, recognize the patriarchs of the new covenant people. Recognize the patriarchs of the new covenant people. Look at chapter 10, verse 2. So he just called these 12, and he's given them this particular authority to these 12. And then we get the list. Verse 2. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now notice, what does, so Jesus just gave authority to these 12, to these particular 12, and then he uses this particular term in verse 2, the names of the 12 apostles. This is the only time in the Matthew that he calls them apostles. What is an apostle? Well, in that day, the word apostle, it meant something like what we would say is an emissary, an ambassador. Uh, it was so someone who was commissioned with the authority to act in behalf of someone else. That's what an ambassador is, right? So we have ambassadors in all these different nations as the U.S., and they have a certain level of authority to act on the country's behalf. That's what an apostle is. Or here's another way you can think about it. You guys know about powers of attorney, right? Powers of attorney, someone who can act on your behalf, like sign medical paperwork or do banking for you on your behalf. That's like an apostle. An apostle is a power of attorney for Christ. 
they have an authority, a limited authority, a stewardship authority that we just saw was given to them to act on behalf of Christ, to extend his mission. Now, why 12? Why 12? Why 12 of these guys? Well, if you think about it for a minute, it, probably should, it should probably cross your mind, hey, 12 apostles, 12 tribes. And that's exactly what the issue is. Uh, later, uh, Jesus will be very explicit about that in Matthew 19, 28. 12 is significant because it corresponds to the number of the 12 tribes of Israel, and Jesus makes that explicit in Matthew 19, 28. Now, obviously, some of the names are brothers, so that means they're not all descendants. There's not like separate descendants from all the 12 tribes. But what are they? They're representatives, representatives of the 12 tribes. Remember Ezekiel 34 and these promises. Jesus is the Davidic shepherd who's regathering the tribes of Israel. And so now he commissions these 12 as kind of the foundational members, the patriarchs of that new covenant community for the purpose of regathering the 12 tribes of Israel. These are the 12 patriarchs of the new covenant community. And you got to remember this. This is first and foremost for Israel. The new covenant is first and foremost for Israel. We get to partake in it as Gentiles by faith through union with Christ, but it's first and foremost for Israel. That's what's in view here. Jesus wants to regather Israel because when Israel is regathered because of the Abrahamic covenant, the whole world gets blessed. The fate of Israel is welded to the fate of the world. Well, why is he doing this? Why is he recording this list? Well, remember, who's Matthew's audience? It's the Jewish audience, and it's those who they're coming out, they have to start separating from Judaism because Judaism isn't accepting its Messiah, but you still have Jewish Christians and they have to separate. And who are they going to look to? They're going to look to their patriarchs. You remember the 12 patriarchs, uh, Jacob, his other name was Israel, and then he had his 12 sons that really became those 12 tribes. Well, Jesus is the foremost representative of Israel as its king, and he's appointing 12 apostles, 12 powers of eternity, attorney as representatives for the regathering of those 12 tribes, for all the promises of the covenants coming together. Here's the other thing to notice about these 12. So, so, so Matthew's Israelite audience needs to know, who are my forefathers? Who are the definitive 12 apostles for assurance and for for, for assurance and for knowledge, right? Uh, these are the spiritual forebears. These are the ones who told the, the, the Jewish people the gospel, are these the right 12? So that's why he gives this list, for assurance. But notice the makeup of these 12. This is very interesting. Who do we got? Well, let's run down the list again. First, Simon, who is called Peter. He's the preeminent. He's the first among equals. He is. Peter is the first among equals. We're going to see that. We've already seen some of that in Matthew 16. He's the one who confessed Jesus to be the Christ. He has a preeminent position. He's a first among equals. Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. We saw their calling in Matthew 4. They're all fishermen. Middle-class guys, uh, probably fairly decently well-to-do, not the poorest in the land, but, but working men who are middle-class guys. Philip and Bartholomew, we don't get any elaboration on them. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. We saw the calling of Matthew in chapter 9, and this, he puts this little appendage. Matthew, the tax collector. Why does he do that? Because tax collectors are despised. They're like the outsiders. They're the outsiders in Israel. Uh, as a tax collector, he's working ultimately under the Herods and ultimately under Rome. And he, he as the author, he kind of appends that there to express humility and it's like, I shouldn't even be here, but I'm only here by God's grace. James, the son of Alphaeus, just to distinguish him from James, the son of Zebedee, Thaddeus. Simon the Zealot, maybe your translation reads Simon the Canaanian. That doesn't mean he was from Cana, nor does it mean he was a Canaanite. It's an Aramaic term that translates over into zealot. And who are the zealots? Well, the zealots, uh, if you were to fast forward, let's say, uh, to AD 66, uh, they were a party who wanted to overthrow the government. Uh, and they did. They rebelled in AD 66. That's when Rome came in and crushed the nation. But leading up to that in the decades, there's enough evidence to suggest that even though they didn't necessarily take the full-blown military action they wanted to, they were military people who wanted to over... They were zealous 
for the law, they were zealous for their nation, and they wanted to overthrow the government. So you got Matthew, who's working for the government, like in the IRS, and then you got the other guy, Simon, who's like wanting to overthrow the government. Don't know how that worked, but actually I do. We'll say it here in a minute, but and Judas Iscariot. What does Iscariot mean? I don't know if you ever thought about that. It's a transliteration of a Hebrew word that means man of Kiriath. It's just a city in Judah. So he's probably Judean, which actually makes him a distant relative of Jesus, probably. He's from the same tribe, probably. But here's the marker. Who betrayed him? I always read that, and it's like, hey, that's a plot spoiler. spoiler. Why are you doing that? But Matthew's intention, he's talking to Jewish Christians. They already know the story, but here's the guy that betrayed him. And you think about the makeup of these people. They're diverse and normal. They're diverse and normal. They're not scribes. They're not Pharisees. I mean, we don't know the background of all of them, but it doesn't seem like it. They're diverse and normal. And what brings them together? The king, following Jesus, the one who has called them into his kingdom to repentance and faith. That's the only reason these guys are together. That's the only reason you have Matthew and Simon the Zealot sitting side by side and loving one another, because of Jesus, the king because of grace. And what do we take away from this, this list, right? This is first and foremost for the Jews to recognize, here are your 12 patriarchs, here are the 12 foundation stones of the new community that Jesus is doing in regathering Israel. But we're Gentiles, by and large. Well, first, just like many of the peoples in this list, like Matthew, we recognize the grace that we have received as Gentiles and being brought into the new covenant community. First and foremost for Jews, that's what the gospel of Matthew is first and foremost too. But through union with Christ, when we repent and we have faith in Christ, we are brought into union with Christ, the ultimate Israelite. And by faith, we have the apostles as our spiritual forebears as well. These men, these 12 men, they, they guided the first generation of Christians and they set the church on its trajectory. The New Testament is the result of their oversight and labors in addition to their ministries as they eventually dispersed into various parts of the world. But those are our forebears. We can, we can trace our spiritual lineage back to them. And what's amazing in this is that Jesus, by grace, brings together different people from different backgrounds and unites them around himself and his kingdom and forces them to work together in joy. It's a joyful bringing together, and yeah, we have differences, but we work together because we are all about King Jesus. And the miracle in all of this is, is he uses them. He uses normal and diverse people to accomplish his purposes, to work in the harvest. That's us in this church. We maintain our unity and love by loving following and obeying Jesus and having his purposes and kingdom as our purposes. We're all from different backgrounds. We're all from different walks of life. We have different thought processes, different careers, all of it, and yet the only, only the one thing that brings us together is Jesus. His rescue and his bringing us into the work of his harvest to get together. Get ready to compassionately go to work in Jesus' harvest of his people. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you gathered us in as a wandering sheep, as, as those torn and abandoned. As a stock of wheat, you brought us in, Lord, and you brought us together. You brought us together. We thank you for the apostles, for the twelve, and also the apostle Paul who or our spiritual forebearers, we thank you for being part of the new covenant community. Lord, I pray that there are any here today that do not know you, who think they're okay, but they have not sworn allegiance to you, or maybe their life is a mess. Lord, either way, they, you have compassion towards them, and I pray that they would know that, and that your compassion would break their heart. Grant them repentance and faith, Lord. 
Lord, that's what you've done to us, and we just desire for it to happen to them. And for those in our community, in Hood River and the Dalles and the Gorge, Lord, we pray for those who are under who who are under organizations that call themselves churches and yet have a distorted or wrong view of teaching and Christianity. Lord, we pray that you would rescue your sheep from those and bring them into sound churches, whether that's here or other churches in the area. Lord, we, we ask for that. We ask for your mercy and help in that. Lord, we pray for grace to engage as we have opportunity. Lord, we pray for grace to show compassion, to proclaim the gospel forthrightly and, and faithfully, and show compassion not just for the, physic, not just for the spiritual reality. We want to do that, but also for their physical needs. Help us to do that and to be that people. Help us to mirror your character, Lord Jesus. Lord, be, build your kingdom. Build your people. For the sake of your name, for your glory, King Jesus, amen.